The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is the fall line. Maybe there are no real endings in life. There are simply transitions into other states. That's certainly true in a cold case. Whether there's a reunion, a discovery, an arrest, or even a conviction, there are always unanswered questions, and when we discuss those mysteries, we keep the case alive. As long as the names of Jeanette and Danette Milbrook are in the public consciousness, this case isn't done, and thank God for that. Because we might argue that it has only just begun. The last thing we want in this case is closure, because hasn't it been closed long enough? So much is in motion, but it's also all up in the air. A series of hopes pinned on the goodwill that we hope officials feel and the responsibility we think they owe. This is not about the blame game. The media, the nonprofits, the police involved today may not have been involved then, and they're not responsible for the mistakes that their predecessors made. However, they are responsible for their current treatment of the case. We understand the limitations of overstaffed, underfunded forces, but those forces can still take a family's phone calls and give them a meeting. They can choose to invite a victim's mother in instead of making her wait in the lobby. They can discuss solutions. We haven't heard from Richmond County Sheriff's Office in quite some time, though a reporter recently passed along a message to us. She told us that we should make contact with the department to share any leads of information that we might have gathered. We found this message to be confusing. After all, we attended just such a meeting in early June and handed everything over then. We followed up with an email containing more information. That went unanswered. A recent Augusta Chronicle article states that Aiken County says Richmond must contact them in regard to the Aiken Jane Doe. Richmond is quoted as saying that they have. Then the coroner for Aiken mentions that he has never worked on the case. This discrepancy might simply be chalked up to a communication lag or the officials being interviewed on different days, but we can't help but feel a sense of foreboding. To help this family wouldn't take much and would certainly be good press for any and all officials involved. But it hasn't happened yet. On Sunday, July 20th, 2017, an Augusta Chronicle article quoted Aiken's current coroner on the possible connection between the Aiken Doe and the Millbrook case. He noted a few discrepancies that we hadn't heard about, including an estimated death year in the late 80s and the possibility that the person had given birth. Yet the state's missing an unidentified list, Project Searchlight, and several other resources, like the Doe Network and the Charlie Project, consistently list a death date between 1990 and 1992. We've requested further details from the skeletal autopsy, but wonder if the coroner might have been referring to the other Shaw Creek Jane Doe, a woman also in the same age range, but who was found in the late 80s. Her remains showed evidence of a C-section. If the coroner was indeed describing the Aiken Doe that Shantae saw, the family will be relieved to hear it because it will mean that it's not Jeanette. We'll keep you informed of updates regarding the Aiken Doe and we'll release future information and or findings via the podcast. 
Aiken says they're looking into any and all possible connections, and so far we think that's true. They've been quick to respond to FOIAs, to return calls, and to communicate. There was another unsettling event this week. A person who identified herself as a case manager for National Center for Missing and Exploited Children contacted Shantae via Facebook, ostensibly after seeing the latest news report from WRDW in Augusta. This person first asked for a contact number for the DA and then told Shantae that she was wrong. The twins had never been taken out of the system and Nick would never do that. This resulted in a heated exchange and Shantae gave up after finally stating that her mother, Miss Louise, was not a liar. It was hard to believe that the case manager for the twins, as this is who that person purported to be, would have so little information on the case. At first, we honestly suspected trolling, but to what purpose? This person requested no information, asked no questions, and offered nothing. They simply wanted to correct what they viewed as an egregious error. But if the person was from NICMEC, why didn't they know the basic facts of the case? After an exchange of emails with high-level NICMEC staff, we established that the sender was indeed from the center, and that the organization often uses Facebook to get in touch with families. We asked that a new contact person be assigned, one who knew more about the case and one who would believe the Sturgis family. After all, NICMEC's own records and their own spokesperson could easily confirm the truth of their statements. We know it's hard to believe, but this all happened. We verified it. After that, things begin to happen quickly. The Sturgis family received an apology. More importantly, though, NICMEC promised action. NICMEC's Executive Director of Missing Children Division, Mr. John Bischoff III, promised to personally look into the case. They promised to contact Richmond County and be proactive in asking that the twins' case be addressed. They committed to updating the twins' age progression pictures, to running their social security numbers, and to sending out a TV crew to film Shantae and the family, and then to producing a video to be shared on social media and beyond. They are to be commended for taking action to address the issue and to get movement in the case of the Millbrook twins. We just wish it hadn't taken a letter from a couple of podcasters. We do not make the family legitimate. We do not give them credibility. They've earned that on their own. Recently, a member of the Facebook discussion board asked if the twins had ever been fingerprinted. In the 1980s and 90s, it was a regular practice for local police stations to hold drives or host field trips for elementary school-aged children, who then had their fingerprints taken in anti-kidnapping or missing child initiatives. Did the twins ever participate? Are those still on file somewhere? With the consolidation of the police department and the sheriff's office, it's unlikely, but we're looking into it. Their dental records, which were not requested by officials until 2013, had long ago been destroyed. As for the school record Shantae hasn't been allowed to access, perhaps the DA can aid the family there. We want to touch back on theories because that's the biggest area of uncertainty in this case. Every lead that we've developed might be wrong, but if so, they should be crossed off the list to make way for new avenues of investigation. We've already said that we do not believe law enforcement was directly involved in the twins' disappearance. So why the lack of care? Well. It was three weeks away from the Masters Tournament, and it's likely that Northern Augusta media had little thought of two missing black girls from a poor neighborhood. Might a similar case, but featuring white twins, have been hustled off stage so easily? It's hard to imagine that it would, even in the weeks before the Masters. 
We might even imagine vigils that would look lovely, candlelight flickering and all that green landscaping. Even after all they've learned, the family still hopes the twins might be alive. They've imagined dozens of scenarios that might allow for this, thought of J.C. Duggard, the women held captive by Ariel Castro. But if not, we're back to the handful of leads that we've developed. The Aiken Doe, Joseph Patrick Washington, sex trafficking, an unknown captor or killer, or perhaps a known one close to home. We've told you of all the people who haven't been interviewed and who should be. The cab driver who crossed those streets so many times. Their father, their father's friends, the drug dealers who were convicted alongside him. Some of them are still in prison and some aren't. None of them have been questioned. We're told that when a person disappears, you start with a family and then you move outward. Someone should do that. We're hopeful that the DA's investigator will indeed pursue these leads. As for Joseph Patrick Washington, well, any association to him is based on MO, location, victim pool. The GBI holds the DNA collected from his car, or so we've been told, and it's up to Richmond County to run that DNA against the familial samples donated. The same goes for the Aiken Doe. And if none of that leads to an answer, then the investigation continues. My co-host recently spoke to Stephen Sadow, a private criminal defense attorney who practices in Georgia. We wanted to get his perspective on some of the criminal aspects of the case, or rather, the potential aspects of the case in terms of the leads that have been so far developed. Our first question for you today is, if someone could be identified as a perpetrator without actually finding the twins, how would that be prosecuted? Well, if you identify the perpetrator, that is suggestive that in some form or fashion, you're going to be able to get DNA from that individual in order to go one step farther to match DNA that I assume is existing already in the hands of law enforcement. So you'd have to get a search warrant for the DNA of this alleged perpetrator. And you'd have to have probable cause to convince a judge to issue a search warrant for the DNA. It's the same as if you were trying to take blood or some other form of bodily fluid. So that actually leads us to our second question, which is um, that if a person of interest refuses to give the DNA sample, how does the court proceed? Again, I'm assuming when you mean the person of interest refuses as in has been asked to volunteer and the person says no, one would have to obtain a search warrant from a judge sitting in the jurisdiction and venue where the person of interest resides. So to give you an example, if we're talking about Augusta, Georgia, you'd have to get a judge from Richmond County Superior Court or the Magistrate's Court in Richmond County. The officer would have to convince the judge in a written affidavit that there is probable cause to believe that the DNA will lead to probable cause to believe the person of interest committed a crime. And they'd have to outline what information they have, identifying the person of interest and connecting him or her to the crime. So at that point, whether the person wants to volunteer DNA or not, that's no longer relevant because it becomes mandatory? Correct. Once the warrant is issued by a judge, law enforcement executes the warrant. And if the individual does not agree to do it in a voluntary sense, they can use whatever physical restraints are necessary to obtain the DNA. 
or they can take the individual before the court and the individual could be held in contempt of court and literally put in jail until the, per- the person of interest changed their mind. Our next question goes in a different direction. Um, the family has always had some hope that the twins might be alive. Um, they've seen cases in the media like Ariel Castro's decade-long kidnapping of three women and the J.C. Lee Dugard case. Imagining a case like that, which we know is very rare, how would that be prosecuted? I think what you're asking me is if there is no, and I hesitate to say it in this fashion, but it's the way it's referred to, there's no body. That is, there's no scientific indication of death. There's no beyond any doubt of the deceased. You would prove it through circumstantial evidence. Uh, tying the person of interest, uh, hopefully through DNA to start with, and then circumstances which would convince a jury beyond a reasonable doubt that the individual is dead and that the in- that the person of interest committed the crime, rendering it homicide and murder. You don't have to have a dead person per se as in a dead body. You just have to have circumstantial evidence sufficient to convince a jury beyond a reasonable doubt that there's been a death and the person on trial was responsible for the death. So our fourth question here would be sort of an overview of the case and how it's moving along now. Our understanding is that um, Jim Clemente has an organization called the American Society for Investigation of Cold Cases. We understand that that can be brought in by local law enforcement if requested. In your opinion, Recognizing that this case has had difficulty moving forward, it being a cold case, um, would that be the best use of listeners' time and energy to try and get Richmond County Sheriff's Office to ask for help from this volunteer organization? Under these circumstances, I think, would cause local law enforcement to move forward even with hesitancy. And if you bring in what appears to be a volunteer organization, Local law enforcement simply has to provide enough information for the volunteers to go out and do their work. So I look at it in this sense. Would there be any harm in doing so? Absolutely not. Would there be the opportunity uh, to move forward uh, beyond what is presently happening? Of course. So you should do it. We're hopeful the DA Natalie Payne and her investigator will follow through on what they indicated they do in last week's meeting. We hope that the sheriff's office will recognize that the Sturgis family is waiting for them to act and that the family, though they've been ignored, will accept that action with open arms. We hope they recognize that the family is no longer alone. So if you want to see change in this case, make it happen. Share it with the media. Let officials in Augusta and Georgia know that you expect the Millbrook case to be investigated. We will not let the twins continue to drift at the corners of Augusta's collective memory. Right now, Augusta Crime Stoppers offers up to $1,000 for information leading to the conclusion of a case. Perhaps advertising that would help. But the bigger the reward, the more press. And the more press, the more chance we have of reaching someone who might remember March 18, 1990. We reached out to Richmond County Sheriff this week and asked for a statement regarding the current progress of this case. They declined to comment on the ongoing open investigation, but did indicate they are exploring new avenues. So maybe we have hope. How are you all feeling as a family in terms of 
any hope that you might have that this case can be solved after all these years? I don't know. I don't even know how to feel. I just want to solve. I just want to solve, you know, even if they can't solve it, at least we know they tried. That's all I can say. Yeah, there have been several people who have been concerned They don't want to mislead your family with any false hope that it might be solved in case it can't be solved. And I think I've tried to reiterate, I think your family can tolerate the idea that it couldn't be solved. What y'all have not been able to tolerate is the fact that it was never investigated. Yes, that's all we've been wanting all these years is for them to look into it. Even if it can't be solved, you know, at least we know y'all did all y'all could to try to solve it. But for the last 27 years, nobody has done anything. So what they're doing now that, you know, or what they're saying they're going to do, I feel hopeful based off of that, you know. I feel like we're getting somewhere with the case now that so many people have got involved in it and I know my mom, you know, she still feels the same way. So I have to try to encourage her. You know, mama, just look at it on the bright side. I said, at least Laura and Brooke came in, in the picture, and they did all this to get these people to listen. I said, so let's just get these people a chance, you know, and see what they're going to do. I said, if they don't do anything, then there's somebody out there that will. Ain't nobody going to tell you no all the time. So don't feel like nobody's going to do anything. Uh, Nobody has done nothing all these years. And, you know, so she's just like, they ain't going to help us. Ain't nobody going to do nothing. So I say, I don't even know why we're wasting our time. I said, well, mama, I said, you said that all the time. I said, but look, I said, I called down there so many times. I said, finally. When Richard Roundtree got in the office, I said, somebody listened in. And I said, even if it's like 10 years from now, somebody bound to listen. You know, somebody is going to listen. And even if we don't ever find them, at least we know we tried and we ain't never give up. Mm-hmm.